0: Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we are here with Emily M. Danforth to discuss her latest novel, Plain Bad Heroines. Thank you, Emily, very much for joining us. Do you want to start off by just telling us a bit about your novel and what it is? Sure. Thank you for having me.
1: Um, playing Bad Heroines is a, is a very difficult novel to summarize. I'm going to do my best, but I'm, I'm just sort of warning you, inevitably someone's going to read the book and then say that you, didn't, that you didn't summarize it well, and I think that's fair. Um, my joke about the book is that it's, um, it's sort of like Picnic at Hanging Rock. Plus the Blair Witch Project times lesbians, so that's sort of like my like quick, you know, my quick, uh, quick and dirty on it. But um, it's it's essentially divided into a uh, present day half and a historic half, and the historic half takes place in uh, in and around 1902. We go a little bit further back in time, but largely in 1902 um, at a coastal boarding school for girls. Um, And the students in question have gotten their hands on a very real memoir that I'm sure we're going to talk about later called The Story of Mary McLean. Very real book. Uh, And every student that, that gets hold of this book, bad things seem to follow. There seems to be some sort of curse kind of gripping this this boarding school. And so we really just follow a copy of the book as it passes hands. And that's roughly the historic half of the book, the present day portion of the book, it's roughly present day. It's I think of it as about 2015, 2016 is sort of where I sketched things out when I was writing the novel. Um, that involves the making of a horror movie, a controversial queer horror movie about that curse. And so they're shooting on location at the Brookhaunt school for girls. Um, and the production also seems to maybe uh, be feeling the effects of the curse. And so those two stories move back and forth um, and comment on each other. And one of the reviews, uh, mentioned Gothic mischief, and I think that's that's maybe sort of the right the right kind of catchphrase for the book. Gothic mischief seems to fit. So um, there are other elements of the book, but that's kind of the, the quickest I think um, version that I can give you.
2: Okay, it's has it taken you a long time to get that pitch? Like. <laughs> It's dead. not even,
1: and it's not even very good is the thing. Like I'm like it should be getting better and I feel like it's getting worse. I just like I'd like to just have the first part where I just say picnic and hanging rack plus the times lesbian should just be done, but people just blink at me. You know? And then what what's happened is a few people have read the book and, and they're like, it's not the historic portion goes back further and it follows the women that you know the, that founded the boarding school. And I'm like, I know, but like I, I'm just trying to <laughs> I try to tell you quickly, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. When did you first get your hands on Mary McLean and her memoir, and what made you think, "Oh, this would make a great novel"? I didn't. I
1: didn't think that. Um, I was just. I was just reminded of this because I was trying to figure out exactly when it is. I mean, I've been sort of talking about the book and I've been saying, oh, "I was in my late twenties. It was sometime in grad school," and my office mate, uh, my second year of grad school told me recently, she's like, I know when you got it because you wouldn't shut up about that book. And and she didn't like me particularly, which I didn't know at the time. We're good friends now. And she was kind of annoyed to be my office mate. So I'm learning all kinds of things. Right. So already she didn't like me. And then apparently I wouldn't shut up about Mary McLean's memoir. So it was it was roughly around like 2008. And I had read about her, I was doing research about Butte, Montana, where she lived when she wrote the memoir, This Mining Town, and I thought I was going to set a story there. It was really sort of colorful place at the turn of the 20th century, Um, and, and sort of read about her, and then filed that away, and looked her up, and became really fascinated. But I became fascinated with her because I knew the legend of her right before I read the memoir itself, and so I knew that, like, cocktails had been named after her and she'd licensed her her image to a cigar manufacturer and that she, you know, was openly bisexual, right, in 1902. I mean, I knew these sort of, like, interesting facts about her, that her book sold 80,000 copies in the first month, but I did not know how much I was going to love the book. And that's, I think, the thing that really sort of seeded itself. So it was like, oh, she seems fascinating. And then I got the book and I was like, this book is so funny. This book feels like something that I would sort of think right now, right? She's, she's you know, writing it. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. I was reading it and I was like, I feel intensely like this would have been me as a teenager as well.
1: <laughs> right? Right? And you're like, how were you thinking these things? And I mean, she wanted to title it, I Await the Devil's Coming, which is like the best memoir yeah. title of all time. So it was once I read the book that I really sort of, um, I knew that like someday I would do something with it. Um... But I was well into writing a different version of Plain Bad Heroines that really was only gonna tell the present day story of the of the making of this sort of cursed um horror film before i kind of figured out that that mary McLean's memoir would play a role you know what i mean so it's not like this perfect kind of like oh i found her memoir and then i said it didn't work that way for me yeah I think, like i have to mm-hmm. find a thing like this is probably like familiar to you and i think a lot of creative people like i had to fi- i have to find a thing and then like let it marinate for a long time before i figure yeah, out like, oh absolutely. Yeah. that thing yeah so she's so i mean i'm I can't say enough about her book and i think like one of the funny things about doing you know some press for this book um is just the number of people that one think i made her up right like they'll (laughs) they'll even like go look at her wikipedia page and i'm like mary McLean would not like this i feel like she's turning over in her grave (laughs) she would not be thrilled to think that like you know um but second of all like you know like i it it just sort of shows you i think like how many people still don't know about her yeah uh, yeah which is like unreal to me, right? Like how sort of there have been scholars since the seventies, kind of trying to like collect her work and and um, a number of sort of you know scholarly books published, really of writings about Mary McLean, and a couple of good memoirs, and then Melville House reissued the book under its original title, but but even still. Like an alarming number of people don't know anything about her at all. So. Mm.
0: Yeah. I, we do queer history, and I never heard of her until we got an email from your publicist saying, hey, you should do an episode about this and
1: look at Emily's book. And, and you're I'm like, like cool. oh, that's cool.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, <Who's this> <laughs> I looked her up on Wikipedia, and I was like,
2: oh, this looks gay.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so, and that's the thing is like, I mean, now you've read the book, right? Like she's mm. so... She's so explicit in sort of her her longing and her desire, right? And she's, like, trying to find the language of the day to say, like, I want to sleep with my former teacher, right? Like, it's just, it's so, yeah. yeah. And so even when I'd heard that about, like, I'd heard, like, you might see, like, bisexual or sort of, like, some sort of, you know, coded thing, I was not prepared for just how gay the book would be when I read it, right? Like, how many entries would be devoted To these, you know, this 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 real like crush she had on her former teacher. I mean, it's you know, it's it's it. Throughout the book, she's talking about her an anemone lady. So yeah, Yeah. I became sort of you know, it. I think like I became kind of haunted by not Mary McLean. That wouldn't be the right way to put it, but but certainly her voice in that memoir. Mm -hmm. Um, until I couldn't really, there was just no way not to write about it.
0: (laughs) <laughs> sure. yes. I feel
1: like I yeah. had the experience of teenage girls in 1902, you know, who also became so intoxicated by that book, so.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know, like, your first book, uh, Cameron Post, Miseducation of Cameron Post, was also a queer book that was banned for being queer in some places, in the same way Mary McLean's book was banned at yeah. the time. Did you, like, I mean, obviously you would see the connection there, but kind of, did you think about that connection? Did that feed into your writing, *Plain Bad Heroines? I-
1: I- Yeah, I don't, like, again, not, like, in this neat kind of, I mean, I think, again, once I started thinking, so I got really, like I said, like, several hundred pages into this other version of the book that was just going to tell the present day story. And I was trying to answer for myself the question of, okay, so I have this location, this cool location, it's creepy, it's gothic, it's, you know, an abandoned boarding school, why is, why is this place abandoned, like, what happened there, right, and I was really just trying to answer that question for myself, um, and I, that's when I started doing sort of research into, you know, women's colleges at the turn of the century and, and women's boarding schools um, and romantic friendships, largely, right? And that's when the sort of, like, I think it kind of, like rose back up um, somewhere in my brain that like, oh, Mary McLean's book was published at this time, right? And there were were all these like young women across the country obsessed with it, I mean, and like, obsessed with it to the point where a a woman in Chicago um, stole a horse, and when she went before the judge, you know, the judge was like, why did you steal this horse? And she's like, I wanted something to write about, like Mary McLean, you know? So it was just like, why wouldn't I steal a horse, you know? And so, and then that same woman started her own kind of Mary McLean club, and I knew that, so I was like, oh, this all is kind of fitting together and it was around that time that my book um, yeah my first novel was being pulled from a reading list um, by a school board in in the, here in, in the states in Delaware and so I know all that stuff was like sort of again kind of like bubbling together yeah um, mm-hmm. I just don't think I would have like presumed it did get me thinking differently about when that happens to your book. Like, I think like there's different, different offers feel different ways. There was a part of me that felt like really cool. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, do you like feel
2: like you've made it as a queer author once you've made it to the bad list?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. When, when like, a preacher in town makes a literal list that they were dispensing, someone emailed me this, of, like, all the sex scenes and the swear words. And I was like, this guy really went through this book, like <laughs> 50 pages, right? And I'm like, of course, right? <laughs> and so there's a part of you that feels a little bit, and there was such a, an amazing reaction in that town. I mean, the, the school's GSA, which had had, like, a dozen students or something year the year that this happened, It it became like this. I feel like so often happens if if the, the the community finds out that a school board is taking an action like this. So often, like it happens and nobody knows. But because it became this public story, it became about. So much something so much bigger at that school and problems at that school than than had to do with my book. And so by the next year, that GSA had like over 100 students and that had nothing to do with my book. Right. It was just sort of people being like, this is not our school. And, you know, we we are going to kind of rally around this cause. But it's, you know, at its root, there are all these other kinds of issues going on in the school with its homophobia. Right. And it's. Yeah so um that was like it ended up like being really remarkable i mean i think like it brought great attention to the book it sold i did all the stuff that we know happens when when places try to ban books um and people hear about it so that was good but there was there is a part of you there was certainly a part of me even though there was that like now i'm a banned author right um that like at least had to step back and contemplate for a minute like you know what it means when someone says your book is bad yeah and and sort of like and like is like like a force for like moral corruption essentially right Mm -hmm. like this sort of like you know to wield it that way not like bad as in like oh it's not well written or something right like authors are used to that and that stings in a different way but it did it did get me thinking about that and of course because i was writing a gothic novel there's this long tradition right of of like the the kind of cursed object, right? Like the book that's got some sort of malevolence attached to it or the amulet or whatever it might be. So yeah, all of Mm. that stuff did kind of bubble together for me. And um, I just don't think I would have presumed to compare my situation to Mary McLean's. You <laughs> know,
0: like if she was <laughs> yeah, a
1: no, no, fair <laughs> fair She was a really big deal. And I'm like, yeah, nobody's naming cigars after me. Let's keep it deal. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I mean, I'm sure there's something there. But um, but yeah, I um, yeah. it did get me thinking about like, yeah, the idea of a bad book, a bad queer book and, and what I might do with that narratively. So Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Since our History Podcast, I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in the history side of things. How did you go about researching the 19th and early 20th century kind of boarding school and that kind of lesbian scene and that kind of thing? What was the process like? <laughs>
1: that lesbian
0: scene.
1: <laughs> um, so I started, well, I started with, um. Um, I'm sure you. you I'm, I'm sure you're familiar as a queer history podcast with Lillian Faderman's work. So I'd mm-hmm. read "Surpassing the Love of Men" before, um, but I think I would read it in a grad school class actually. But I got that out again, and I mean, it's if if Plain Bad Heroines is big, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like a thousand pages, right? Um, and looked again at sort of like the eras that I was looking at, um, and then found a bunch of other references for that. Like, I, I feel like Lillian Faderman's work has saved me a bunch of times. And I think I looked at all girls and Twilight lovers again, too, sort of mm-hmm. early on, but it was really surpassing the love of men that I started with. Um, uh, but like, as a, I think like as a fiction writer, I do my research. Yeah. I, sometimes I hesitate to even call it research a bit differently, right. Than like academics do it. So I might start with like reference books, right. Or try to find sort of, um secondary sources but but most of the time i'm also doing things like scrolling ebay for there's a part in the book um with um uh uh, stereo view cards right yeah i like to i like i liken them to like the instagram of the day everybody had them if you could afford them it was this way sort of like in your parlor to transport yourself to this other place and i knew that there were you know certainly kind of um Um, titillating versions of those cards but I didn't know how many I could find and how many would be explicitly sapphic and so I had all these searches set up for a long time just for like sapphic you know like these really Mm -hmm. kind of like random searches that I thought won't produce anything and I ended up finding a lot um, and and actually not for you know very much money and and those kinds of things are like really like to be able to get my hand on something right that that like was produced Mm. and being looked at right like in 1898 that's like that's that's the kind of research that I feel like I really need as a novelist like especially someone that really cares about sort of um uh visual images and sort of sensory description and so I was doing that sort of stuff too I was reading the ghost stories of Henry James and Edith Wharton to kind of get some of the sense of like atmosphere right um and some of the stuff with the narrative voice um Obviously, I was reading um, not just uh, the story of Mary MacLean, kind of again and again and again to get her voice in my head and to get some of the, you know, there's the, the Plain Bad Heroines is really sort of like littered with references to her text. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also, she got so much newspaper coverage, right? Like, was the, there mm. were so many newspapers at that time and she got front page coverage really from the time the book was published in A- April of 1902 all the way through the summer and really into the following year, 1903, she was still getting newspaper coverage. So that was just sort of fun, right? Like just sort of like reading the breathless coverage of Mary McClain, And she gave some really great interviews, too. She gave one um, uh, from Fanny Corbin's house, actually, in Boston. She eventually got there to Zona Gale, this great sort of profile of her that was like, you know, full page. Um, and then there was also just, like, all kinds of satire of Mary McLean, right? Like, there were, you know, there were a number of, like, that, like, occupied a lot of my research, just sort of getting a sense of, like, how was the public receiving her and talking yeah, about mm-hmm. her and how was she responding to it was really, you know, interesting, too. Um, and there are a couple of of articles that I read were sort of, like her fondness for the ladies is mentioned, right? <laughs> like couched in some sort of language but usually that was just sort of there was like a she was so provocative they were like we can talk about her like loving the devil like there were plenty of things to talk about that was actually not talked about that much yeah mm-hmm. um there's a book by lynn peril called college girls and that has a really great section on sort of crushes in college and romantic friendships um and that led me to some other um some other resources where I found this might have been in the fader, and it's been a while, but I found some really great selections of letters home from students. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I remember really in particular was a student writing about her crush, or, you know, a woman writing about her crush on another woman to her mother, and the mother writing back. And this was in like 1896, let's say. The mother writing back and saying, "You know, your crush on Libby sounds so wonderful. It reminds <laughs> me of a crush I had on Jane." And I was just like, oh, "How that's was so this crazy. happening?" Right? Like, I, if yeah. I had written home to my mother in 1998, that is not the letter that I would have gotten back. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: To, you know,
1: so it was just, yeah, so I kept kind of marveling at that. Um, I found a, I found a really cool, um, just for my purposes, like a, a an alums, an alum from a, uh, this was, uh, this is again like an eBay find, an alum from a Rhode Island boarding school. Um, who had come back four years later to give the graduation address mm-hmm. from an, an all-women's boarding school? So I found her graduation address, and that was even useful in terms of like just um, she's mostly spoken platitudes. So like what she <laughs> yeah. said was not that interesting, but like the package that it came in, and sort of like the the way that she wrote it, and some of the notes that she wrote to herself, really kind of gave me a sense of her. So I mean, I my research is really all over the place, yeah. Um, but uh, but all of it really fertile. I just think like I always hesitate to kind of you know I, or i always feel like i need to say like as a fiction writer some of the stuff that i considered research i think like other people might not but but ended up being really useful to me in ter- in terms of like thinking about like what a scene might feel like you know like what mm-hmm. what's on libby's desk in a particular yeah. scene you know so
0: yeah 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 so it's about kind of getting the feel for it rather than the yeah when we research looking at the facts
1: you know so I, I read this great like uh this book called wicked plants that was just about like you know it's just about like dangerous plants that people have used throughout time to kill other people, basically, you know what I mean? So, like it was read. largely really enjoyable Yeah, uh, research. Yeah. So,
2: All yeah. of that, like, orangery section was mm. so cool, honestly. That was very atmospheric, that setting. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah,
0: um, I <laughs> yeah, I mean, a that lot.
1: a lot of the plants ended up in there, yeah. 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 Terrible, dangerous plants.
2: <laughs> um, A lot of, like, sort of media with queer content that you see involves, like, an individual isolated queer character but you've made this obvious choice that every queer woman in this story is part of like a circle of queer women or like is full of it's a story full of like friendships between queer women do you want to talk a little bit about that choice to depict like a community of sapphic women rather than just individuals
1: Than just one, (laughs) right? Just we get the one. Thank you very much. It's such a thing,
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think part of it. I mean, it 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 was there was like obviously I was conscious of doing it, Mm. but I also have to say that like it it is reflective of my life as a woman, Mm. right? And so that is a piece of it. I think just sort of thinking about um, that, like that most of my good friendships are queer folks, right? Like the vast majority of like my circles um, involve queer folks. And so I thought, you know, th- there was something, of course I was conscious of it, but I just yeah. like, I don't want to make it sound too prescriptive, right? That there was this kind of like checking of boxes. I also think just because I was working particularly with these Gothic themes and characters die, um, you know, I know that, um, you know, we long as like, as, you know, I'm saying like as a as a fan of horror, um, have been sort of like baited so many times, right? Mm-hmm. With like the lesbian, the one lesbian storyline, and be kind of like you know I'm thinking oftentimes with TV and maybe less with with lit, and we get hooked on it, and then those characters get killed off, right? And so they sort of serve their purpose, um, which is to like bring an audience along. And so you know there are characters, certainly there are lesbian characters, there are queer women characters that die in this book. It's it's it is a it's a gothic novel with a yeah. curse and people die. Yeah. Um, and I think like you know that was a thing too. Like if I if I had just had like a couple of characters and those were the characters that that died, that would have been a problem just for me, like in terms yeah. of what I wanted mm-hmm. to do with the book. So that was that was a piece of it too. But I think getting to see all these different ways of being a queer woman and not just in the present day story. But also in the historic mm. story was really important to me. I mean, I think like even like a character like Eleanor Faderman, who we spend one chapter with at the beginning, she's not even really comfortable yet admitting this crush she has on a classmate, right? Versus, I mean, she she's you know, she thinks the class she's charmed by her. She's she, you know, but I think the line is she keeps her secret feelings private, right? Yeah. Mary McLean's book like feels like a real uh, you know this this kind of uh, i think like which which like a lot of literature does for young queer people when we read it when we're young and we read the first book that feels like it represents us it really opens her eyes and feels like it it gives voice to like something yeah. that she didn't know she could speak right but she's still not at a place where like her classmates Flo and Clara are right who are off in the woods making out basically, yeah. right and i just <laughs> yeah. i thought like you know that might make more sense maybe sort of like i think there's people might be sort of more ready for that i'm thinking again like heteronormative audiences um mm-hmm. In the in the in the contemporary section, where they're like, oh, well, of course, Audrey and Merit and you know all those characters mm. could be different kinds of queer women, but it was important to me that it was that way in the past too, right? Like Libby and Alex are not the same kind of you know they have these like these different, so I wanted them to feel like um, you know like people and not just kind of uh, yeah, stock queer ladies,
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: around essentially, yeah. you know, so yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: That was something, honestly, that I loved about it as well. Was every time you mentioned like a minor character, there would be these throwaway lines that were just like, "Oh, Esther's wife" or whatever. <laughs> that's right. Like every everybody minor got character yes. was Queer as yeah. well. Like. Yeah,
1: yeah, That's right. That's right. And you're right. Like that did. I mean, I think like I think <laughs> you're absolutely right. And I didn't. Even, I didn't even realize I was reading something. I had to read something out loud, and I had forgotten. Like in like this second chapter. The guy that accosts uh, the uh, the character of Audrey um, for folks that I haven't read mm-hmm. the book, her mother has is kind of like a, a B list um, uh, horror movie star, right? Slasher movie star um, who's 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 long past her prime in terms of like Hollywood's uh, consideration of her, um, and she's accosted kind of early on by a fan. Yeah. And I realized, like, I even gave him a husband, right? <laughs> yeah. but it is, it is like this kind of casual. He just says, like, "Oh, my husband's going to be so mad he missed you," right? But
2: yeah, I mean,
1: yeah. So I think there are very few um not characters in the novel. You're right about that.
2: I feel like that's reflective of my life, honestly. Every yes, time I'm good. Like, oh, I wonder what good. straight people think about this. I have to like scour my social circles, being
0: like, "Where is a straight friend?"
1: <laughs> Tip interview one, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the themes that I found in the book, and I don't know how intentional this was, so you can tell us, was it's a lot kind of about like how people are perceived and how they want to be perceived and how stories are constructed. Um, and that's really interesting to us from a historical perspective, because we look at a lot of queer people and like, were they queer? How can we know that kind of stuff? But I was wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about that theme and how you were thinking about it.
1: Yeah, well, I just, I mean, I think that I have, I'm certainly one of many (laughs) queer women and just queer people. And I'm sure you talk about this on the podcast all the time, right? That, 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 um, is endlessly frustrated by this kind of like, it feels like we're we're constantly needing to have like a a notarized statement or something to prove Mm -hmm. that someone was, Mm. was like gay in history. Right. And, and we know all the, all the very, like, there's so many reasons why, Queer women have been erased, or sort of like they've they've been um, coded, right? When we look at a hor- historical text, but it just feel, I feel like I've gotten in endless arguments um, about like sort of show me the proof, right? Yeah, and yeah. I just I, I find them inc- you know, just incredibly frustrating and and really reductive, like such a sort of simplistic way to look at at something that we're not going to find. No, we're not probably going to find a notarized statement where somebody is saying like, yes, I was a lesbian on this date, in right? Like it's just not going to happen. Um, and so there was like a, I think like I was very aware that I was writing, like I was making very clear that especially these relationships that are ta- taking place in 1802, right, that they would would, would be, we, we don't have to do the work that we do with like a Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca, right? Like yeah. you're absolutely going to know what Alex and Libby mean mm. to each other. That's going to be very clear. Like And, and, and that was very intentional to me. Um, You know, I think, like, I don't know, like, what version of the book you got, or if you saw any of these materials, but like, even in my own life, and I I say this, I make this point, because I don't think it's unique. I don't think it's unique. Um, I had a great aunt whose letters... Um, were essentially destroyed by another relative um her her letters her love letters with another woman were destroyed by another relative and I don't even know about this because a cousin mm-hmm. told me yeah, yeah, um yeah, and so I just think like there's this this these constant sort of acts of erasure can make it, it, there's this sense of you know for so many of us that that it's not even just that like our history has been lost or we don't know our history. Right. But, that, but, but we're feeling that like absence, that erasure that like those deliberate acts of other people removing parts of our history. Um, and I really f- like, I, I think it's something I think about a lot as a queer woman, this kind of sense of like knowing without knowing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean that, I, yeah, that, that's a thing that I think like bubbles up for me a lot. And then, and then I was playing with that in terms of the Gothic novel, We were sort of saying like how stories are told or, you know, um, like one of my favorite sort of elements of gothic lit is, and you can see it across like all different kinds of gothic lit, is, you know, the sense of sort of um, voyeurism, right? Or sort of working, like who has what information at what time. And so that was something that I was really thinking about. And you see that um throughout both sections of the novels with the of the novel with kind of mirroring like something will happen in the in the present scene right and you'll get like a a reflection of it a distorted sort of reflection in the in the historic scene right and then there'll be like a like a line of dialogue will repeat um yeah and you know all of those were sort of you know intentional and i felt like um yeah, we're, we're me kind of trying through these meta techniques to get at at how we tell stories. And, and, you know, even, yeah. I think even like with the, with the, with the narrator, who's this very firm kind of like, trust me, right? Like, I know what I'm talking about. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to sort of take you by the hand. I'm going to lead you through these things. But then also is like cracking jokes and the footnotes mm-hmm. and those yeah. sorts of things. Um, and, and even using the footnote to do that, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm certainly not the first novelist that's done this, but this idea of kind of like, in an academic work of, you know, an academic work, the footnote would be this sort of source of authority, right? This would show, is kind of like where you show the work you've done, you show the mm-hmm. research that you've done and you kind of show, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that you're an expert. These footnotes don't work that way. <laughs> no. <right? laughs> like not when you're like sort of making jokes. And so, I mean, all of that seems to me sort of to be a commentary on, um, And I don't want to... I feel like I'm getting sort of pretentious about it. But I mean, all of it is kind of working to hopefully kind of undermine a little bit the sense of um, all the history that we've had. The the hundreds of years of history without queer folks being repped the way that we should, essentially. Mm. Right? So Mm -hmm. kind of poking... It's poking fun at all of it. I mean, it's it's winking at it,
2: right? Yeah.
0: I love the footnotes. I found them so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) I think my
2: favorite one, it was right Mm -hmm. in the first chapter, is that... Mm -hmm. um, when it's talking about Cousin Charles and the footnote is just like, fuck that guy.
1: Yeah, oh my god.
2: That yeah, was such a high quality uh,
1: footnote. Well, good. I know there's a, fuck, there's a fuck Roman Polanski in there. I think I yeah, actually have like yeah. two. And when we did the copy edits, my copy editor was like, do you need both of the fuck Roman Polanskis? And I'm like, oh, kind of, but we can cut one of them. I
0: think <laughs> I mean, there's only there's
2: only both. one in the version that I read, I think, but oh, there right. is one.
0: And it for, was quality.
2: Um, <laughs> I am. This is not actually a like queer history question at all, but I am interested in. It's such a complex book to pull together, like you know, three different storylines in three different times, and I'm very interested in like how you wrote that and how you planned it. Honestly. Like, did you just wing it and edit hard afterwards, or?
1: I mean, kind of. Um, yeah, I, I also I took a really long time. Like I oh, took, yeah. like I have the worst kind of like d- don't follow my method because um, <laughs> it was basically like you know. Um, I mean, I've been saying eight years, but it was it was eight years from initial idea, right? From initial idea to publication. Yeah um and it's certainly not like eight years of writing every day but i like i had said i wrote my way into this other a long way into this other version of the novel and then and then i had to like i got stuck there when i realized i wanted to write this this version that had all of the historic section um and i didn't know if i could do that i just didn't know if i could pull it off um and it just seemed like kind of too big and i would never figure it out so i just got stuck there for a while like a couple of years a while just sort of like not doing anything um and then, yeah, I, 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 you know, sort of, like, would write my way, I say, to, like, a dead end or a trapdoor and stick there for a while and then kind of write my way back out. Um, and then even once I had a draft, right, once I could finally say I had a draft, then the work really began of, of sort of, like, figuring out how to go back and forth between the sections. Yeah. And I have to say, like, my editor was really helpful with that, where I just kind of, I think, would be more willing to say, oh, people will figure it out. And she was great about like a little more guidance, right? Like a little more kind of like keeping people um, moving between them. So I think that was like, it was, it was that really fruitful in that sense that she kind of put me on, on track. So yeah. Yeah. But I, I like, it's, you know, it's a totally fair question. I just think that like, I, I, you know, I have like the kind of like the worst methodology <laughs> for doing it, which is like get lost a bunch of times and take eight years and you'll be able to do it too.
2: <laughs> Good advice. Have you got any plans to write more historically focused queer fiction in the future? Was it a process you enjoyed? I mean, I love. I yes, I loved. I loved writing this book. Um, uh,
1: I, but I just, I think like I know that my next novel will be really different than this yeah. novel. Just like this novel was really different than Cameron Post, and I think like that's the only thing I know about myself as a novelist that I, I kind of. Like I think, like my ambition resides in a place of, of of just wanting to try to make something new every time, and trying to write. Like I, I follow the the very cliched, but I think for a reason, cliched advice, which is like I want to write the books I want to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And so, like, yeah, the next the next thing I'm working on is going to be sort of a, a a domestic thriller. Um. And I like I partly just as a challenge to myself, although my my agent keeps kind of rolling her eyes about it. I I, I <laughs> really am like it's gonna be. 325 pages and she's like I'll believe it when I see it and I'm like okay well you'll see it you know just like partly just I think to sort of see if I can do it like if it's possible for me to do so um, so yeah but I I would love to I have a have a story set in the 70s um, that would start in the '50s and follow a couple, and and then meet them again in the '70s. Um, that I would that I would love to write. So I think at some point I'll be back to doing okay. something historic. And it will always have it will always have queer women in it for sure.
2: Uh, yeah, I was about to ask that
0: only queer dolls.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well it will never not? I don't know what else to write.
0: That's that's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Well, we'll look forward to seeing you on here one day again when you've written your next historical novel. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thanks. thank
1: you for having me.
0: Thank you very much for talking with us. Uh, I think we'll wrap up here. Um, we've been Queer as Fact. You can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you found this podcast. Um, and we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact, or you can email us at QueerasFact.com. Do you have anywhere online we should look out for you, Emily? Oh,
1: no, I'm on Instagram at em danforth. That's really the only place I reside online. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was honestly
2: like quite gratifying to me to see that you weren't that active online, because I, I'm no. always like, if I ever get published, am I going to have to start being on Twitter or something?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Probably your publishing people will tell you to be. So yeah. again, do not follow my lead. But <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just occasionally on Instagram.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, I guess we'll just encourage people to go to their local bookshop if they can or mm-hmm. go to the internet and look out for your book. Skip straight to that. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I'd just like to acknowledge that we are recording today on the lands of the people of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Uh, we acknowledge and uphold their continuing connection to the land on which we record this podcast. Thank you very much for joining us and we look forward to seeing what you come out with next. Um, I love this book and I definitely encourage our listeners to go and buy it. I did really enjoy the book, yeah. yeah. Thank you very Thank much. You.